Welcome to this edition of City Parents Talk. I'm Helen Beedham, Director at City Parents. Today I'm speaking to Baroness Shami Chakrabarti, CBE, who's currently Shadow Attorney General, Labour Peer in the House of Lords, lawyer, human rights campaigner and author. Her previous appointments have included being Chancellor of both Oxford Brookes and Essex Universities and Director of Liberty, the human rights organisation, among many other high-profile roles. We're going to be talking about how she has managed her career whilst raising a family and being in the media spotlight and hearing her views on creating a more gender-equal society. Shami, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, pleasure. So this year marks the first 100 years of women in law. How has the legal industry changed in the time you've been a lawyer and what changes would you most like to see happen in the next decade? Well, clearly it's a wonderful centenary um, and particularly close to my heart. It's 100 years of of, of women in the law, though it's not that long, actually, um, some people would say, in the greater scheme of things. And of course, it is wonderful that we've moved in that time frame from the situation where, for example, Christabel Pankhurst, with her first class law degree from Owens College, which became the University of Manchester, could not enter her father, Richard Pankhurst's inn, which I think was Lincoln's inn. So we've moved from that situation to, to, to where we are now with the wonderful um, role model, Brenda Hay sitting in our Supreme Court but I don't think we've we've gone far enough and I don't think we're moving quickly enough and we see that most markedly with the if you like the vertical segregation between the numbers of men and women entering the professions of law at the at, at the junior end and how many will make it in those and in what proportions to silk at the bar to um, partnership in in law firms, particularly city law firms, and then into the judiciary and the senior judiciary in particular. And I'm just not comfortable with the pace of change. Mm. I do not share Lord Sumption's glacial patience for change. He famously in 2015 said that we mustn't we mustn't rush into into this. It would take at least 50 years to another 50 years to achieve gender parity in the senior judiciary and we mustn't rush things because we would upset the delicate balance of the law and discourage bright young men and all sorts of things that I fundamentally disagree with. He of course is uh, currently the wreath lecturer which must be um, BBC political correctness gone mad. <laughs> um, but anyway Way, I think is that gender injustice may be one of the greatest human rights abuses on the planet in that it affects the most people on the planet because it actually affects men ad- and boys adversely as well with mm. this peculiar, peculiar segregation. In my book of women, I compare it to apartheid and that is not a comparison that one makes lightly. Why do I think it's made out? Because this discrimination, oppression, uh, segregation really is in some places still civil and political mm. in some parts of the world. They're still, you know absolute legal differences between the treatment of, of women and men but everywhere it is also social economic and cultural and if you are going to deal with a global problem that is a millennial problem as well and I don't mean affecting millennials I mean it's been millennia um, in the making and in its endurance you really need slightly more radical measures I think at yeah. this point. Yes. So thinking specifically about the legal industry, what would constitute a radical measure for you? I personally think that it's time to, as some law firms have done, to really look at 
targets in relation to the senior partnership or the board, etc., etc., um, to improve the legitimacy and credibility of that firm. And I personally would advocate even amending the Equality Act in the not-too-distant future so that we can make it easier and lawful for there to be quotas and affirmative action in, for example, the senior judiciary, which is not just about fairness to women in the profession, but it's about the legitimacy of our senior judiciary with the people that they serve. So I think that, you know, change is not happening by itself. It needs it needs a kickstart. And I've changed my position in my adult lifetime. I shall be 50 very soon. And I do not take the same view that I took mm. 25 years ago. I thought that, you know, life was meritocratic. Uh, my generation of women and men all been chums at law school and college together. And there was no reason at all why there wouldn't be parity by now. And what I've learned since is that there are structural and cultural and social and economic factors that mean that, that we do not live in a meritocracy, yeah. not in the United Kingdom and not anywhere on earth. Yeah. So what advice would you have for anyone listening, whether they're male or female, who wants to help address some of those gender injustices, whether that's in their local community, in their industry, so that we are more quickly enabling a more equal playing field and speeding up that pace. I would say that you if you're if you're serious about fighting this particular injustice and discrimination you have to address it in every sphere of your life. So you have to address it in your parenting, in your friendship circle, in your intimate relationships, in your workplace, in any sphere where you have power and influence or even in the spheres where you don't feel you have sufficient power and influence. And the trick there is to come together with other allies and people in solidarity so that you can you can make a difference together. So it means that anyone who, for example, is a parent or a teacher or a line manager or an employer needs to be recognising how big this challenge is for people in the discriminated against category. Mm. And they need to be using their any tool at their disposal, really, to try and uh, and address that. Yes, that is about mentoring and encouraging people, but it's also about calling out, in the nicest possible way initially, chauvinistic behaviour, entitled behaviour, insensitive behaviour, thinking about the working day, thinking about work practices that indirectly discriminate, mm. thinking about assumptions that we all make, thinking about self-selection that we all do, making sure that recruitment and promotion boards are more diverse mm -hmm. so that those that they appoint and promote will more naturally be more diverse. Yes. yes, lots of suggestions there. And I know that many of our members will be familiar with experiences where in the workplace as in society generally the assumption is often that the, the, the main caring responsibility rests with the woman rather than with the man and we know that many of our male city fathers members want to be both very hands-on parents and progress their career so you know making it easier from a financial perspective but also more socially acceptable around you know gender roles in the workplace and in the home and how how can men help to 
join forces with women. This has to be about um, feminist men and women, and I don't flinch from that word, by the way, and it's not just about unveiling statues and wearing T-shirts. It's about really believing in gender equality as a goal that will benefit women and men, boys and girls. And we absolutely have to be in it together because it's, it's a struggle for social justice. And how we can all help is by working together to, for example, have flexible working, which would be as good for someone who's got elderly parents to worry about as it is for someone who's got children to worry about. It's been perfectly acceptable in the city, if I may say so, for a very long time for people to go and do business on the golf course and have long lunches and do all sorts of things with their time that aren't, you know, the hard-charged hours behind a desk. It's, it's very possible to, to change the way we look at life and work so that that kind of flexibility will also apply to people who have responsibilities at home. The technology that we have now, including this amazing technology that is allowing this podcast to happen, can enslave us or it can empower us. And we can make it easier for people to work at home at least part of the week Mm -hmm. to save commuting and save the planet. But we also need to make sure that we don't use it to enslave people so they feel they have to be logged on and plugged in 24 hours a day. But there's no reason why why we can't do that. I think the final thing that I would say about all of this is that the big AI revolution that some people are excited about and other people fear is happening before our very eyes. And we we need to take that challenge and opportunity on board in a socially just way. Now, some people are very worried that all sorts of work is going to become redundant because we'll even replace junior lawyers with with computers and algorithms and document management programs, etc., etc. I think that the problem with that model is that no one will be able to buy all these amazing goods and services that the robots do if people don't have work and income. So instead, we should be saying, yes, maybe people will have the opportunity to work for fewer hours a week, or maybe we will invest in the things that humans will always do better. Mm-hmm. You know, let the machines take care of some of the duller, more back-breaking tasks mind-numbing tasks, if you like, in in the city, and, and invest in people to do the things that people do best. And that is things like really good lawyering. It's all very well to say that uh, people can go to websites and portals instead of going to legal advice, but when it's an oligarch or someone with a lot of money, they want someone to hold their hand from start to finish. And this is good work for our young people, mm. hopefully not 24-7, but hopefully for a decent amount of their time because people want to be in community and work is part of community. We need to invest in those caring professions and I've always thought of the law as a caring profession. Mm. Certainly the points in a working relationship where actually you really need that human contact because it builds trust, it builds the relationship and it's and, and both individuals in the party get something very definite out of that. I know so. that a lot of law in the city is you know is about transactions and so on but even so there are a lot of people who come to the law whether they're the poorest in our society or whether they're people who are, who are much wealthier you know they have difficult divorces and disputes with their partners and former 
partners, and I, I mean romantic partners and business partners, and often we're talking about tension and crisis, and whether it's in your corporate life or whether it's in your personal life, you want a real human lawyer who's going to take the time to explain the law to you and, and empower you. And that makes it, in my view, yes, a, uh, an intellectually stretching profession, but a caring profession nonetheless. Yeah, and we've touched a little on flexible working, the great benefits of technology, as well as the, the dramatic ways that's changing our, our home lives and our, our work lives. You hold a number of high-profile roles, and at the same time, you're a very public figure, uh, often interviewed and in the media. That must involve a huge amount of juggling and multitasking. Um, what pressures does that place on you, and how do you manage that? I think the first thing to say about these pressures is that they are nothing like the pressures of people on the breadline and the poverty line. And I really think that's important. I've been asked this type of question many, many times over the last, you know, fifteen or so years. How do you how do you juggle? How do you do this, that and the other? Well let's be honest about this. Because I've been a middle class professional woman Yes, with pressures, but everyone has pressures. I've been able to have childcare. I've been able to have all those little bits of extra support that that you have with privilege to help you juggle. That doesn't make it, you know, perfect, but it makes it a lot easier mm. than these working men and women who, you know, don't even have decent accommodation, let alone childcare or money for transport yeah. or, you know, so, so I think we have to put our hashtag first world challenges in context. But but as to the juggling that everyone inevitably has to do, I think, you know, I was very lucky for a long time to be the director of Liberty and that gave me yes enormous responsibility but also flexibility and I tried I tried to lead by example so that my colleagues could feel that they could be flexible too I can remember um, a former colleague telling me that um, that litigators couldn't be part-time and I thought that was an absolute nonsense and changed that policy immediately and you know the part-time litigators and other lawyers that I worked with were some were some of the best and if people work in teams there is no reason at all why there shouldn't be flexibility for for women and men. But I had the power to to influence that environment because, if you like, I was the boss. So I helped myself at the same time yes. as helping, hopefully, yeah. my colleagues and, yeah. and those around me. And, um, and that, again, is part of the privilege that comes with, hopefully... You know, having a senior role and a professional role, and it's not to be—it's not to be wasted. You help yourself and you help others, and that would be true of men as well. Workplaces often change in relation to things like flexibility. When the men want the flexibility, and they and, and they want to spend some time with their small children, yes. and they want to have work-life balance. You know, when they speak for themselves, they can speak for everyone. Yes. And I've heard many of our male City Fathers members talk about you know, how passionately they feel about you know, achieving better and true gender equality because their spouse or partner is working and facing certain challenges or coming up against stereotypical assumptions. You know, they're very aware of that. Or they may have daughters growing exactly. up, wanting to go into career and finding that they're having very different experiences to their own experience. I mean, in the end, we're all human. That's why I, I use the strong language and um, metaphor of apartheid, because, you know, apartheid was bad for everyone. It was very bad for white South 
Africans as well as it, as well as for black South Africans because they were living under this architecture of discrimination and oppression and to live in that state is to live in an unnatural state for human beings. Mm. Yes, of course, we're men and women, but we have far more in common than we do. I know it's a, it is a real difference. It's one of the few real differences because, you know, there is biological difference there, but it's exaggerated. Mm. It's certainly exaggerated in terms of who makes a good lawyer. Or, I know law books used to be very heavy. <laughs> weighty. Very weighty, but, but, but nonetheless, you know. Well, we women are used to also, well, as our fathers, but often having a couple of little ones on the head. I mean, there, so is no, there is no excuse uh, at this moment in the 21st century for the differential representation of women in the senior judiciary. Mm. I've said that before I said it in my book, my colleagues um, in the shadow government say that and I've heard all the excuses from lots of of senior lawyers, many of whom I respect but that argument I do not respect and uh, change has got to come a little bit quicker than Lord Sumption's 50 years. Yeah absolutely hope so. So you've achieved a great deal already in your career in terms of rapid progress and very senior appointments. Looking back over that career path, are there any pivotal points or significant milestones that really stand out for you? Well, obviously, as a human rights campaigner, there were some very important and significant campaigns for our rights and freedoms and politically. Things like fighting detention without charge or trial, you know, 90 days and then 42 days were offered at one stage. And uh, defeating those very bad ideas was something I was proud of. But I was equally proud and perhaps more proud in the end, looking back, of the advancement of the young women and men who came to work at Liberty. And I think, in the end, the test of anyone in a leadership role is not how um, sparkling their own CV looks. What you want is a link to the CV of anybody who ever worked for them. Mm. Anyone who they recruited or promoted or sent on their way off to another place of work that's really the test of leadership there's a very outmoded archetype of leadership that's about people on horses leading armies into goodness knows what and that is not a 21st century model of leadership which ought to be about empowering people building teams encouraging people who really need encouragement and it's 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 when younger people in particular that I have worked with or who have worked for me grow in confidence and, and go on to do things that they enjoy and, and have great opportunities and contributions to make. That's ultimately when I feel proud. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Shami, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. And thanks to all our listeners too. If you'd like to find out more about City Parents, please follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook or visit us at cityparents.co.uk and stay tuned for more from City Parents Talk coming soon. Goodbye.